camp out, cook out for uh, men at uh, Orlando's, and more information will come out on that. But uh, I know at least I think Bob Bob's going to bring your you got a pop up camper. So there's you know if you got a pop up camper, you can bring that or bring a tent or just bring a ground cover and throw your sleeping bag out on the ground like I'm going to do, and hope it doesn't rain. I still do it the way I did it for many, many years growing up at Camp Penile. Just I never could, no matter where I went, never could get used to doing it, sleeping in a tent. It's just on the ground. Of course, I'm a little older, so it may be a little harder. But anyway, it'll be fun. And uh, we're going to have some other adventuresome things to do out there. Once I get all that squared away, I'll let you know. And then uh, what else is coming up? Anything coming up? Seems like something's coming up. Oh, the church anniversary is coming up. That was, uh, when is that, Alan? That's like, I think we're going to have a little uh, thing on Sunday, the uh, the first Sunday in April, the, which is the 7th. Yeah, I think it's April the 9th, and the church will be nine nine years old. So we're, next year, big celebration. We'll hit the decade mark, 10 years. So... Lord's really provided well for us the last 10 years. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give uh, all of you an opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship and ready to study the Word. Use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this evening thankful for all the many ways in which you have blessed us, provided for us in grace. What a tremendous privilege it is to have been born and reared in a nation that has freedom, freedom to teach your word, freedom to proclaim the truth of your word, freedom to freely assemble and proclaim the gospel, and study your word. Father, we pray those freedoms would continue. We continue to pray for our nation. We pray for wisdom for those on the Supreme Court as they address this issue of same-sex marriage, that they might have clear thinking both uh, legally and uh, spiritually and historically, recognizing that any change, it will be uh, tragic and devastating in uh, a lot of unimagined and unintended ways. And, Father, we pray for your guidance and direction for them. Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we might continue to stand fast and firm for the truth of your word and that we might always have the spiritual courage necessary to uh, stand up for the truth no matter how much it goes against the politically correct ideas or the uh, popular ideas of the culture around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, and we're continuing our study, the expansion of the church in Paul's first missionary journey. And here he's going to experience more opposition as well as some acceptance of the gospel. 
uh, I think we can get through most of the chapter. Most of it is narrative, which always moves pretty fast. But there's some interesting and important things to point out as we go through this this uh, particular chapter. The message that Paul brings to the church at Lystra is not nearly as long as the one he brought to the synagogue in uh, 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 Antioch, and so it, we won't have as much uh, in-depth uh, analysis there. But there are certain things that are touched on here that are are uh, are quite significant. Before we get into this, I want to just comment by way of introduction that what we will always experience as believers is opposition to the truth of God's Word. And when you live in a culture that is in ascendancy, and that is based upon the Word of God, which is what was true about uh, this country from the time of the original founding of the country in the colonies uh, through the period of the War for Independence in the 19th century, the Word of God had a tremendous, tremendous impact on the nation. I was out this afternoon and was listening to uh, Dennis Prager on talk radio for a little bit, and during the time that I had him on, he made the observation, which I thought was interesting, that of all the things that he talks about and all of the opinions that he expresses on his show, the one thing that consistently generates the greatest amount of hate mail and angry responses and hostility is when he talks about the fact that this nation was founded on biblical principles and that the founders of this 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 country uh, had their thinking shaped by the Bible because as he pointed out and as he was talking about this that the the, the school systems of this country the educational systems both uh, public as well as private all the way up through higher education continuously teach the founding fathers as if they were just a bunch of 20th century secularists and not products of, of a strong 18th century theistic worldview, most of which was was uh, biblically based. Now, that doesn't mean, as I've pointed out many times, that they were uh, biblical exegetes or great theologians or they were always the most orthodox of theologians, but they thought within a biblical theistic worldview. They looked at the world as that which was created by a personal infinite creator, that there were absolutes of right and wrong that dictated all areas of behavior, and and they believed that the basic problem of the human race was that they were corrupted by sin. Now, how they understood that varied uh, from per- person to person, but they all shared that general worldview, just as almost everybody in our country today shares a relativistic worldview. Even most Christians have a relativistic worldview because that's the, the culture they they grew up in. And it's influenced them through the media, through television, radio, uh, movies, films, everything. Their peers, their professors, their teachers, that's all impacted that. So we come to a point in our country where, like we see today, is... Uh, two cases that are coming before the Supreme Court to legitimize homosexual marriage at a national level. It's going to be very interesting to watch uh, what happens uh, on the court. 
But you see today something very similar to what we see with the Apostle Paul is somebody stands up and takes a stand for the truth. They are attacked even by some conservatives. There are some conservative organizations that are promoting uh, uh, homosexual and uh, and gay marriage. This is fine to change the definition of, of marriage, but marriage was defined by a creator God who embedded those concepts within a culture. Now, on the other hand, you've got a bunch of, uh, uh, of I think, legalistic Christians, on the other hand, who have made um, a shibboleth out of out of homosexual marriage, and they act as if homosexuality is a sin above all sins. And it's just a sin like every other sin. It's a sin like lying's a sin, adultery's a sin, fornication's a sin, uh, sorcery's a sin, murder, uh, dis- being disputatious, uh, heresies. All of these other things are listed in the list of sins. And uh, it, they were doing some man-on-the-street interviews the other day asking people what they thought about uh, homosexual marriage. I thought, boy, I would love to, love to be one of those people picked, because nobody's going to give an answer like I'm going to give, which is I'm an evangelical pastor, and I just wish I had a lobby group out there that could uh, would legitimize my sin, like their lobby group is about to legitimize their sin. I would bet nobody has ever articulated it quite that same way, implying that it's not any different from any other sin. Because most evangelicals want to do that. They want to make it some special category of of sin. In terms of its um, consequences, there are serious consequences, but not nearly as serious as many other sins. But it does affect the uh, fabric of the family, which is the uh, marriage and the family is at the core of the stability of any society, and it has tremendous ramifications there. It's going to have a lot of ramifications for finances. Uh, as I was uh, driving to uh, church this evening, I had the radio on. I don't know what station it was on. Somebody was talking, and he made an observation that there were that he knew of at least one case of non-homosexual men, heterosexual men who had been friends for much of their life, and due to, for financial reasons, they had gone through a civil union ceremony so that one who was uh, less prosperous and had didn't have very many benefits would be able to share in financial benefits, Social Security inheritance, things like that, of the, of the one who was more prosperous. Now, if we think about the implications of that, that is profound throughout society. You could, we could see many older folks, uh, women as well as men who are not homosexual, who one or the other has accrued a number of benefits from work, uh, retirement, things of that nature. And so suddenly they decide that they're going to enter into a civil union with a friend, there's nothing sexual about the relationship whatsoever, but yet it would entitle the partner to the uh, benefits of the of the other. That will have tremendous financial and economic implications in this country. These are the kinds of things that aren't very well thought through in terms of the unintended consequences of changing the law. Uh, just a little bit to uh, to think about. But what happens, and the point I want to make tonight, is when we as believers take a stand for the truth, 
And we recognize that that more and more people in this room, people who are listening out there on the Internet, people who are live streaming, that we have a level of knowledge of history, of the Bible, of theology, that puts us probably, and I'm not saying this out of pride or arrogance, it's really a condemnation of the rest of the culture, Not when I'm not elevating us, because I don't think that when you stack us up to many Christians in previous generations that we are that much more knowledgeable, but when you stack us up against our generation, uh, we're probably probably less than one one-thousandth of a percent. We're in that top one one-thousandth of a percentile range in terms of our knowledge and understanding of these things, and that's not because we know it so well. It's because the education system, both in the church and in the culture, has deteriorated so drastically over the last 30 or 40 years that people who think they know a lot are dumber than wood stumps. They just don't know. They don't take the time to know. They haven't been educated, and the education they have has misinformed them terribly so that they're operating on a lot of erroneous ideas, especially when it comes to history and uh, and the Bible, especially if they think that they know the Bible because they watch these shows on the History Channel. <clears throat> so whenever we speak the truth, we're going to face opposition because the real issue isn't knowledge, it isn't education, it isn't culture, it isn't, um, it isn't uh, you know, economics, it's not the... Um, uh, where you grew up, it doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity or whether you grew up in poverty in Detroit or whether you grew up in Beverly Hills with everything provided for you. The issue, as we'll see in in Romans, is a spiritual issue, and it's the same for every single individual. And all of these other collateral factors are irrelevant as far as God's concerned because the teaching of the scripture is that because of Adam's sin we're all corrupt in every area of our being and if we reject God then it just sets up a, an entire scenario of, of self-destruction in terms of our life and our mentality but the hope is that if we're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and we're studying the word we can have a, a tremendous, full, rich life that is available to us as part of God's uh, grace package for us. And that's where the trajectory of this passage really ends. So we see what happens as Paul goes to this, this town called Lystra. Uh, in Lystra, there's a miracle takes place, and this miracle sets up a, a validation and a hearing for the message of the Apostle Paul, the message of the gospel. As a result of his message, there's going to be a reaction that sets in uh, from the people, a response that sets in from the people that uh, is completely erroneous, but it's illustrative of the reaction you get from a lot of unbelievers because they, what they want to do is reinterpret whatever we've said, whatever the Bible says in terms of their framework and uh, their previous uh, understanding and then once their errors are pointed out to them, then there are some that respond and some that enter into a hostile reaction. And that basically tells the story of what happens uh, in Lystra. Now, here's a map showing uh, Paul's journeys. 
And in this green area in the center, this area here is the modern modern Turkey. And in the center of this area was the Roman province of Galatia. Uh, Galatia was named because there were, uh, there were in previous uh, centuries an ethnic group related to the Gauls or the Celts. Uh, one group in the migration of the Gauls went went west to Gaul, which is modern France. Some other Celts went across the uh, uh, English Channel to to Britain, to Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and those were all ethnically the same people. Another group went east. And they settled in in this area. They weren't ethnic Greeks. They became influenced and adopted Hellenistic culture after the conquest of Alexander the Great in the fourth century BC. And so the the, the common language was uh, was Greek, but many of the people in different areas still spoke their their ancient tongue. And so you have, uh, we were with Paul in Antioch in Pisidia, and then because of the hostility there, they left, and they go to these three towns, uh, <coughs> Iconium, which we studied last week, Lystra, and then Derby, and then he makes a return trip back up this way, then down to the coast at Italia, and then he heads back to Antioch. That's That's what's covered in this particular chapter. So at the beginning, we see that they go to Lystra. Lystra was a a town largely inhabited by the remnants of a small Anatolian tribe. So they trace their roots back. Anatolia is a Greek word for east. When you're in Greece, over to the west of uh, Turkey, when they look toward the rising sun, uh, that was Anatolia, the land of the rising sun. And so this was a small uh, ethnic tribe that had traced its roots back that was pretty much located there. They really had not had much of an impact historically. They had their uh, their own uh, uh, dialect, which they uh, still spoke. And uh, they had, uh, and we know this from a number of inscriptions that we have found uh, in the area, and they continue to speak this dialect as late as the 6th century after Christ. Uh, the city was uh, set up as a colony uh, by, uh, or, or the town rather, excuse me, the town was founded by Augustus, Caesar Augustus in 26 B.C. and gave it a uh, colony status in 6 B.C. During that time, a number of uh, Roman Army uh, retired uh, military veterans moved to this area, but they sort of went native. They they assimilated to the culture of the town, and so there wasn't a lot of uh, Roman influence on the the culture in this particular area. Although the language of Latin did have an impact, and there are a number of inscriptions that have also survived uh, that were written in. Um, in Latin, it was a somewhat rural, rustic market town in this uh, backward area of uh, uh, Lycaonia in south-central Turkey. And we really don't know <coughs> why uh, Augustus established this, this colony, why, he, why it was important. Obviously had some sort of uh, economic or defensive purpose, but uh, to date, from what I've read, we really haven't discovered uh, what that was. They did have a couple of patron deities in the Greek pantheon. Zeus, who is the counterpart to Jupiter in the Roman pantheon, or El in the Canaanite pantheon, he's the chief god. 
and the messenger of the gods was Hermes Mercury in in uh, in the Roman uh, pantheon, and they were the patron deities in this particular area, and that plays a role in what happens in um, in Lystra. Uh, there have been some uh, uh, discoveries of some statues from this era. One has an inscription of a dedication to Zeus. Another has a, a statue of a dedication to uh, Hermes. Uh, there's a, a statue of Zeus that was outside the gate, and this uh, it gets, throws a little uh, light on Acts 14:13, uh, which talks about the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city. Zeus, this was called Zeus outside or before the gate, and so this shows us that that what Luke records here about the people in Lystra and the culture of Lystra fits with everything we've discovered archaeology, archaeologically, and everything we've discovered in terms of inscriptional evidence. And once again, we see that nothing. Uh, in the Bible, it gets contradicted by uh, what empirical evidence survives. Nothing has ever been discovered in archaeology that contradicts the Bible. Uh, archaeology can't prove the Bible to be true, but archaeology can uh, provide evidence of what uh, the people were like, what these towns and villages and cities and empires were like, and what we learn from that is that everything that we find the Bible saying about a time period or a location or a culture fits perfectly with what we discover today in terms of the remnants of those cultures and and those societies. So we see that they they that in Lister there was this certain man that uh, text says without strength in his feet and. He cannot walk. He has never been able to walk. Uh, he is identified as a cripple from his mother's womb. So everybody in this small town knows who he is. He doesn't have a problem with a bad back, which is what you find sometimes in these so-called healing services that uh, faith healers have. He doesn't have a pulled muscle. He doesn't have uh, some sort of... Uh, secondary disease that could be psychosomatic in its uh, orientation. He is known by everyone as having had a significant constitutional defect since birth. And if you notice in the scriptures, there are a number of uh, healings that take place. For example, Jesus heals a lame man in, John, in Luke 5. He uh, heals a blind man who's blind from birth. Everybody knows that in John chapter 9. Uh, Peter heals a lame man who's been lame from birth in Acts chapter 3. So there's a parallel here between the miracle that Paul performs and the miracle Peter performs, which shows that an identification of the two in terms of their role and their function in God's plan. It's, again, a, a, an aspect of God's validation of the ministry of Paul uh, and the ministry of Peter. He's always had this problem. And so he listens to Paul and responds to his message. But there's one thing I want to point out here, and that's this phrase that he's a cripple from his mother's womb. And just want to touch on this in passing. This is the Greek phrase, ek koilias, and it literally means from the womb. Now, there are some folks in terms of the abortion debate who want to identify this as, as uh, inside the womb, but that's not what this means. 
Inside the womb, you have no idea whether he's a cripple inside the womb because he's still developing. Uh, from the womb means from the time of birth. It is not talking about a time period uh, before birth. But let's just look at the phrase grammatically because it's uh, very important to understand what, the point that I'm getting ready to make. In light of so much that goes on in this country over the Roe v. Wade uh, decision and abortion. This is a prepositional phrase. A prepositional phrase grammatically is composed of two, two elements. You have a preposition and you have a noun. Sometimes there's an article with the noun. Sometimes there's not an article. But whether you're talking about Greek, Hebrew, Chinese, or Pig Latin, you ha- a prepositional phrase is the same. It's a preposition plus a noun object of the preposition. So in this prepositional phrase, whether we're talking about the Greek side of it or the Hebrew side of it, it means from birth. From is the preposition. And then you have the noun birth. Now, the interesting thing is that in uh, Hebrew, let's just go back to the foundations in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, there is both a verb and a noun for the word conception. Because the debate today is, does life begin at conception or does life begin at birth? What are the parameters of life? And we ought to ask the question as Christians who are concerned about the Bible, what does the Bible say about the parameters of life and death? When does life begin? Does it begin at conception or does it begin at birth? Now, what we discover in the Old Testament is there is a verb and a noun for conception. Now, the reason that's important is that if you were a Jew in the Old Testament period and you wanted to say that life begins from conception, you had the vocabulary to say that literally. You could say from, and then you would use the noun form uh, for uh, conception. However, that is never used in the Old Testament. Instead, what you have is the phrase mebetin from the preposition men, uh, which is the uh, preposition for from, for derivation, from source, and the word for the womb, uh, betin. Now, uh, the reason they have to do this is because in Hebrew, there was a verb for birth, yalad, that so-and-so begat so-and-so, that's yalad, so-and-so begat so-and-so, so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so. So you have a verb for the word birth. But a prepositional phrase requires a noun to be the object of the preposition, not a verb. So you have to have a noun form of the verb in order to have a prep- literal prepositional phrase from birth. But in Hebrew, there's no noun for birth. doesn't exist. So what you have to do is a word substitution. You have to use an idiomatic phrase or what's called a circumlocution. You remember from high school geometry the, that if you measure the distance around the outside of a circle, that's called a circumference. Circum means to go around. Okay, so a circumlocution, locution is a statement or word from the, from the Greek word logos, 
Uh, and circum means to go around. So if you can't say it one way, you have to go around and invent kind of another way of saying something, sort of like a euphemism. You don't want to say somebody died, they passed away. That's a, circum, a form of a circumlocution. You have another way of saying it. Well, since in, in Hebrew they didn't have a noun for the concept of birth, they used another expression, an idiom, and they used the phrase betin. And again and again and again, whether you're talking about Job or Jeremiah, when uh, God calls Jeremiah and Isaiah from their mother's womb, it is from the womb. It's from birth. Uh, if they wanted to say conception, they had a ver- perfectly good noun for conception to use. They never used it. So the question is, if life, full life, begins at conception, then why do we have zero examples in the scripture uh, of this? Now, uh, usually what the translators will do is they will translate it as, um, as they have the New King James as from the womb, uh, just a literal translation of, a, of an idiom. In one example in Luke chapter 1, in the New International Version, someone correctly uh, translated the phrase, that uh, about John the Baptist, uh, from his, that he would be called from birth. But the phrase in the Greek is from the womb. But they understood that what that meant was from birth. So what I'm saying may be new to some of you, but it is, <clears throat> it is just basic. It's supported in the lexicons. It's basic knowledge. But for some reason, it never, it, it, because of the political uh, the p- political antagonism that's been generated by the Roe v. Wade decision, it's like nobody really wants to pay attention to the data. They just want to go off and deal with other issues. Now, just because full human life doesn't begin until until birth doesn't validate abortion. See, that's the other a fallacy that occurs in this uh, in this debate is that if full life doesn't begin until birth, then it is okay to perform an abortion. And some years ago, and if you want to go back and listen to, uh, I've got some lessons that I did in much more detail on this in the Genesis series. I went through uh, an article from a Jewish encyclopedia that detailed the uh, Orthodox Jewish view. And the Orthodox Jewish view is, I believe, correctly the, the correct biblical view, and it's called the, na- the correct term for it is the nascent life view. And that is the view that, that what, when, when the egg is fertilized in the womb, that unless something unusual happens, the end result of that fertilization is going to be a fully ensouled human being at the time of birth. And therefore, since God has brought this together and it will eventually culminate in a full human life, there, then there must be extremely, uh, an extremely serious justification for interfering with that process. And so while it is not viewed as murder because it's not full human life yet, neither is it viewed to be a wise or justifiable decision to uh, interfere with the normal process of gestation because this is going to be a human being eventually. And so we should not, we don't have the right to interfere unless, of course, it's going to cause uh, major health problems, threaten the life 
uh, of the mother. And that is the historically Jewish view and was a prominent view in the early church. And uh, in fact, it wasn't until sometime later that you get into some different views on how the soul is transmitted. And you had in the third century a theologian by the name of Tertullian, the same man who coined the term uh, Trinitas to describe the three-in-one doctrine related to the uh, three persons, one essence in the Godhead. Uh, He believed that the soul was material, was corporeal, and it was transmitted physically through copulation, through sexual intercourse. This was declared heresy, actually, by the Roman Catholic Church in the early Middle Ages by none other than the greatest theologian the Catholics believe they ever had, which was St. Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas uh, said specifically that to think that the soul is transmitted through the semen is heresy. Okay, so this whole idea that life begins at conception based on this tradition view, that's the correct term for that view, for this tradition view of the transmission of the soul was viewed uh, within the Roman Catholic Church as heresy, but that did not justify abortion. See, somehow in, in, in all of the debates and antagonism and everything, we've gotten this idea that if if the soul's not there, then it's okay to, to abort, and that's not true. That's never been accepted by Jews in the Old Testament or Christians in the New Testament unless there, it was for the purpose of saving the life of the mother. So uh, this is just another use of that phrase that I wanted to point out because it confirms what I've always taught in this particular position. So he's been a cripple from birth, literally. That's what that means. Even though it's a figure of speech, it has a literal uh, meaning, and and you can trace that out in numerous places in Old and New Testament. He's never walked. And so uh, 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 Paul heals him. Now, as we look at Acts uh, 14, verse uh, 9, says, This man heard Paul speaking, uh, Paul, observing him intently, Paul is watching him. Uh, Paul has an understanding, probably because Paul has, as an apostle, has the gift of prophecy as well, understands that this man is has faith and sees and observes that he had faith to be healed. Now, <clears throat> I didn't put the uh, Hebrew, I mean the Greek word up here, but the word for healing is the word that's familiar to many of us, the Greek word sozo, sozo. And sozo is the Greek word that is usually translated in a theological context for salvation. But the broad use of the word sozo was to be made whole, to be healed, to be delivered from uh, life-threatening consequences. And it's used in numerous healing passages in the Gospels where Jesus heals, it either uses the word hiaomai, which is the word for uh, a more precise word for healing, or the word sozo. So it's not talking about the fact that he had faith to be saved, but it's talking about the fact, contextually, he had faith to be healed of his uh, 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 crippling position. So in verse 10, we read with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet, Paul said. Now, I'll point out something about the loud voice in just a minute. Stand up straight on your feet. And notice, he immediately leaped up just like the lame man in Acts chapter 3 when Peter healed him outside the steps of the uh, 
of the temple, he immediately leaps up and walks. The, the miracle involves n- not only a, a restoration of his ability to walk, but all of those atrophied muscles and tendons and nerve endings and everything that goes into uh, uh, into the operation of his feet suddenly works. So God brings all of this together, and he doesn't have to learn how to walk, how to take steps, how to balance himself. So all of those things immediately come together, and he is able not only to walk, but he's running around and jumping around as if he had been doing it his entire life. And in contrast to a lot of the so-called healings that are uh, 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 advertised today, uh, this is one that is a constitutional defect that is documented by the fact that everybody around has known him all of his life and known that this is a basic problem that he has. It doesn't take place in some large uh, arena where nobody there knows the person who's come forward. And in a lot of these healing, so-called healing services, what will happen is people come and they've got bad backs and they've got bad knees and bad hips and bad necks and all this other stuff, and the, the healing part is put off till the end of the service, but they're all told to come up to the, to the front or to the side so that they can be brought up on stage for the healing that will occur later on. Well, they get tired. So the little gimmick that the faith healers use is that they have wheelchairs there so that people can sit in the wheelchairs. So then it looks to the audience that this person can't walk because they're in a wheelchair and they're rolled out onto the stage, and then and they could walk before and they can walk after, and they're told to stand up and walk, and everybody cheers they've just been healed. Well, that wasn't the problem to begin with. There's a lot of phoniness that takes place, and I remember um, Benny Hinn was here in Houston with uh, about uh, a, thou- or a thousand or two thousand of his uh, greatest uh, uh, contributors. I think you had to give twenty thousand a year or more, if I remember correctly, in order to be part of this. And uh, Bruce Bumgardner, pastor of Pine Valley Community Church at the time, had a member in his congregation who was the event planner for the Hyatt Regency downtown, which was where this event was held. And so she invited Bruce to come down and to sit in on this this whole thing from some, and he got there early and got to hear all of their uh, planning sessions and everything that they did and how they uh, established all the theatrics ahead of time and who would be healed and who wouldn't and and it was the whole thing was just an absolute farce and orchestrated from from beginning to end. And uh, I've heard uh, stories like that. I investigated a lot of them uh, about 20 years ago or 30 years ago now when I was doing work in this area for my, for my doctorate. So there's a response. He stands up and he leaps, and this sets it apart from all these so-called uh, miracles today. Let me put a little uh, uh, caveat here. God still performs miracles. He does it directly in lives of people here and there. So we are totally justified in praying for healing. God uh, interfe- intervenes many times, but many times he does not. And if you, I want to direct your attention to a passage, a verse at the end of the chapter, uh, just so you uh, uh, can, can <clears throat> be reminded of this. In verse 22, After all these events in Lystra are over with and they go to Derby, 
then they they make a return trip checking on the churches that they they established along the way and uh, they come back and we're told in verse 22 that what they do in each of these towns is they strengthen the souls of the disciples they they encourage them with the word of god teach them the truth that strengthens their souls and they challenge them to continue in the faith so they're already believers this isn't a challenge to become a believer, but to stay the course, grow to maturity, don't give up. Uh, continue in the faith and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a different, they're already saved, remember? So entering the kingdom is not, this, not a synonym for getting saved. It has to do with entering the fullness of life that God has for us. We'll get into some of that terminology a little later on. But how do, you, how do you experience the fullness of life? We grow through testing. We grow through adversity. We grow through going hard times. And God knows just exactly what is needed for us. And when, when there's somebody in our family, and I, I, I speak from experience of this, having grown up in a, in a household, my mother had polio in the last pol- major polio e- epidemic in the U.S., which was centered here in Harris County. And she had polio and came down with it about two months before I was supposed to be born, so I was born two months early. And um, and I grew up in a household where my mother was in a wheel. I never saw my mother walk, and uh, and I, she was always in a wheelchair. And part of me really thinks that that was probably a good thing. When I was in college, I got a decal from the Second Armored Division put on the back of her wheelchair. For those of you who don't know, the motto for the Second Armored Division was "Hell on Wheels." You know, like many people who have a disability or uh, 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 something that hinders them, they rise above it. And, and I just think, you know, she was just really something else. And and I would, um, uh, you know, hate to have seen what she would have been like if she had been able to walk. I probably would not have survived childhood. I remember one time when I had said something or done something, and I thoroughly deserved a spanking and she had me cornered in the bathroom because I couldn't get around and she got she had the 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 belt with her to give me a thrashing on my butt and uh, I managed to jump up on the countertop by the sink and over her chair and escaped (laughs) hearing as I went out the door the words wait until your father gets home those were the, that was it, you know. I knew that life would probably not extend beyond that afternoon. So, uh, you know, there were a few limitations she had, but but not many. Anyway, we go through tough times in life. We have diseases, we have limitations, we have financial catastrophes, weather catastrophes, all kinds of things. How we handle that on the basis of doctrine is what prepares us in terms of spiritual maturity for the future destiny that we have in the kingdom of God. And that's why God doesn't remove these things. That's why when we say, Lord, I've just got this terrible circumstance or situation, please remove it. And God says, just like he did to Paul, he says, no, you know, you need to learn humility. You need to learn to trust me. And the only way you're going to do it is if you uh, go through this circumstance. I'm not going to take it away from you. Uh, you're going to have to learn that my grace is sufficient for you, so you have to endure it. There are going to be times when God does miraculously heal people, 
And I have known people, talked to people, who knows what the circumstances are, that appear to have had a complete healing and recovery from a uh, life-threatening disease like cancer or some other things. But that is abnormal. That is not the way God operates in life. And so we have to learn to trust him. And it impacts not only the individual who's going through it, but everybody around them, their friends, their family. It gives us great opportunities to to uh, minister to them, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to help them, to show our love for one another, encourage one another, uh, help one another. It gives us that those opportunities. And so without that adversity, we don't get those opportunities uh, to grow uh, spiritually. I know some of us would say, Lord, I just, I've grown enough. Thank you very much. I'll just stay where I am. But uh, the Lord has a better plan. So there's a reason for that. There is healing, but it is, it is not normative. Now there's a response that sets up here. Uh, and that response comes in, uh, in verse 11. Oh, one thing I wanted, to, I said I would mention and point out. Uh, on this, uh, the way in which Paul handles this. The man heard Paul speaking, and he said, Paul says with a loud voice in verse 10. Now, according to a comment that Daryl Bach writes on this, he, he says two details are important about this. The, first of all, Paul uh, is observing him intently, the stare, and secondly, the loud voice. Uh, this was often, these were often two elements that were found in uh, Greco-Roman myths about the coming of the gods when the gods would become human beings and uh, would interfere with human history. So they, these details suggest, he says, in part, why the crowd reacts as it does in identifying Paul and Barnabas as uh, incarnations of Zeus and Hermes. Barnabas was Zeus, and since Paul did all the talking, he was identified as Hermes, the messenger of the gods. And so that it, it's how that their culture sort of plays uh, plays a part there. But what we see here is really a reaction that sets in, and this is a great illustration of the principle in Romans one eighteen uh, to twenty three. Now, it's, I want you to turn with me to Romans 18 to 23. We'll review this just a little bit. But when, uh, especially when teaching children or your grandchildren uh, scripture, we have these abstract principles that we find throughout the epistles of the New Testament. But the abstract principles are often illustrated through real-time stories and events that took place in, in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. And so this is a great illustration in terms of a of a story of how people react to the truth of God's word. Romans 1.18 says that the wrath of God, that's his discipline in time, that's not in time eschatological uh, eternal lake of fire uh, punishment. This is God's disciplinary action on human beings within history. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what we're, we introduced here is that when people reject the revelation of God through nature, through his creation, then um, that is un, they choose ungodliness. They either choose to know something more about whoever the creator is 
or they go in the direction of worshiping the creation. That's the thrust of this whole passage. Whenever Paul encounters unbelievers, he always brings the gospel down to this issue of whether or not you're worshiping the creator or the creature. With the Jews that he addressed in Antioch, he understands that they're worshiping the creator, but they've got a completely flawed view of the creator and they've uh, they've confused things, but and so he but he approaches them from the common background of of uh, accepting the truth of the Old Testament. With the Gentiles, as we will see, he starts with creation, and and he goes back to creation. So there are some people I've heard over my life that have said, "Well, why do Christians make such a big deal about creation?" Well, guess what? Paul often express the gospel by starting with creation because creation matters. Creation is not a secondary doctrine that's irrelevant to the gospel. If you don't have the correct view of the creator God of Genesis 1 through 3, you don't have a correct view of sin, you can't really understand the gospel. And Paul always starts there. So if creation doesn't matter, why does Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, always start with creation when he's dealing with Gentiles? Because creation matters. Now, this is a problem for us today in communicating the gospel with a lot of people because they're so brainwashed by Darwinian evolution that they can't, they don't have an accurate view of God at all. And that was, that's part of the problem that Paul has here is they don't have an accurate view of God at all. And what Romans 1.18 tells us is that everybody knows about God. Romans 1.19 says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. And that's the purpose of the chart. There's a black soul there indicating a depraved, corrupt soul governed by sin. But inside of that, there is internal knowledge of the Creator God. And that's true for everybody, no matter how agnostic, atheist they are. Uh, scripture says there is a, they, a knowledge of God manifest in them and that God has shown it to them. But what are they doing? The last phrase in verse 18, they're suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. It's like a version of the, uh, the old Pac-Man game. This is uh, Operation Truth Suppression. And what they have is a worldview, a mentality that is all informed by their pagan ideas. And as long as they're giving that priority, that just is going to, as soon as they hear the truth, they immediately reshape it, redefine it, transform it. They gobble it up and re, uh, re-articulate it in terms of their worldview. And you say, You'll say something to them, and then they'll say it back to you and go, how'd you get that out of what I said? Because this is an instantaneous action of their soul. They hate the truth. They suppress it, twist it, distort it, and that's how it comes out. And we see a perfect example of it here is that as soon as they saw uh, this man uh, stand up and walk, they began to chatter among themselves in their ancient language, the Lyconian language, which Paul and Barnabas did not understand, they just hear a lot of excited chattering and, and uh, uh, talking, and they're saying that immediately they look at this and they say, oh, this is, instead of saying, they're, they're, they're coming here to tell us something about the true God, they immediately say, oh, this is, this is Zeus and Hermes. They immediately, instantly reshape what's going on and reinterpret everything 
within their false presupposition. Their pagan, non-biblical thinking is just eating up the truth instantly and reshaping it. That's how truth suppression operates. Paul says in Romans 1.20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen by unbelievers, by everyone from uh, Madeline Murray O'Hare to ever, whoever the latest uh, incarnation of atheistic hostility to Christianity is. It's clear to them. They know it. They've just been suppressing it forever. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are uh, without excuse. That is, there is enough information given uh, in creation for them to know that God is there so that they can be held accountable uh, for that. Just a couple of uh, words that are used here. The word for clearly seen is katharao, meaning to see or perceive or something thoroughly. They have a complete, thorough understanding. There's, there's no excuse for them whatsoever. Uh, it's understood, noeho. It's apprehended, understood. They have insight. They know God exists somewhere in their soul. Um, and then verse 21 says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts are darkened. So they come to know God, gnosko, they've come to know God, but they don't glorify him as God, and their souls become empty and futile and worthless uh, through the use of this word matai'a'o here, meaning uh, just to be rendered uh, empty or void or uh, null and void. And their thoughts, uh, their, their opinions, their reasoning, everything becomes distorted, uh, by because of their uh, negative volition, their hostility to God, which means that their their hearts are darkened and they're called foolish hearts, which indicates senseless fools. It doesn't matter how many degrees they have after their name, how educated they are, because they rejected God, uh, they become fools. They profess to be wise, smart, educated, but they're actually fools. So this is what happens in our illustration here in uh, Lystra. And then uh, we see how they redefine everything. Barnabas they call Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, and uh, because he was the chief speaker, Hermes, as the messenger of the gods, was the chief speaker. Then we're told in verse 13 that the uh, priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates. They're going to sacrifice in front of them. And finally, Barnabas and Paul, they're probably asking a question, what's going on? What's everybody talking about? And then when they see this, they are just horrified. And they do a typical Jewish maneuver, Old Testament. They rip their clothes uh, in front of everybody as a sign of, of their heart, gets everybody's attention. And they they run among them to stop them from uh, performing these sacrifices, crying out to them. And this is where we get to their uh, presentation of the gospel. In verse 15, they say, Paul is a speaker, men, why are you doing these things? And, not, and we often say, why are you doing that? What we mean is stop. It's just a, a, an idiom. So they're basically saying, why are you doing these things? Implication, stop doing these things. We also are men with the same nature as you. This is a, a Greek word, homo 
pathes, which indicates the same emotion, same makeup, the same, we're just human beings like you are. We're not God. Stop doing this. Don't, don't misinterpret all of this. And we preach to you or proclaim to you the good news. Evangelizo is the word here. We've just been giving you the good news. So he's, he's been already preaching. That was the content uh, prior to the healing. So we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things. This is the Greek word epistrepho, which is a synonym for metanoia. Oh, it means it's to turn. Like in the Old Testament, you have the word shuv, to turn from uh, away from the idols, to turn to God. Uh, so it's just simply talking about uh, quit believing the things you've been believing and turn uh, toward God. Quit focusing on the empty, useless things and turn to the living God. Uh, the living God, he's, he's pro- preached about Jesus who's raised from the dead. He is alive from the dead. He conquered it. This is a living God as opposed to these idols of stone and wood and metal that have no life whatsoever. You should turn from these useless things to the living God. And then he says, who made the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. See, when we say that today, what's the response? Well, wait a minute. What about evolution? We we get into a debate right away. Oh, well, you know, a, uh, Paul's model for evangelism, therefore, must be flawed. No, we have to deal with this issue. If you don't get God right, you can't get the gospel right. And you have to make sure that the person isn't just thinking uh, about their view of God and their view of sin. You have to clarify, define all the terms, and make sure they're understood. Because most people in our culture today don't have a clue who God is. They have a lot of misconceptions because they've heard a lot of Christians who are really, just like, as I mentioned earlier, they're caricatures of Christianity. They're legalistic. They're extremists in a lot of different ways. They're fighting fundies, and and they don't know much about the truth. It's amazing the vast number of pastors that are teaching the Word today who have absolutely no training, and the large number who do have training that have been uh, swayed away from the truth uh, through academic arrogance. So it's very few that are really teaching the truth, but... There are 7,000 at least who haven't bowed the knee. Sometime recently somebody said to me, oh, after the pastor's conference, a pastor went home and somebody in his congregation said, oh, isn't it wonderful? There's so many pastors today. There was a time not long ago when there, were, there, there, there weren't any pastors teaching the word. And he kind of looked at him and went, yeah, right. You know, there have always been at least 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Um, there are a lot out there. They're just not, they're just ignored or rejected. So we learn a lot here about God's plan for the Gentiles and God's plan for the nations. And since our time's up, I'm going to wait and come back to this uh, next time and we'll complete our study of this chapter next Tuesday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these things this evening, to be reminded of your faithfulness that you do provide for us and whether you uh, sustain us through miraculous uh, healing or whether you sustain us through the disease or the uh, inability or the crisis or the testing, whatever the adversity, whatever it may be, your grace is sufficient for us. And, uh, and our opportunities in testing are simply an opportunity to let your grace be manifested in our lives that we may glorify you in everything that we do. Father, we pray that you would uh, encourage us as we study the things that we do in this this episode in uh, Lystra 
and be reminded of the fact that everything in our life, as far as our relationship with you is concerned, is uh, is directed to training us, preparing us for our future destiny to rule and reign with you in the coming kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.